0: I invite you to open your Bible this morning to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. We're going to read the uh, the entire chapter. If you notice as we go through that it's divided uh, into several sections. The first seven verses deal with the Sabbath year for the land. And then verse 8 through a 22, the year of Jubilee. 23 through a 34, uh, the redemption of property. And then miscellaneous rules concerning kindness to brothers uh, 35 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> and let's give our attention then to uh, God's Word. Uh, the, remember, this is uh, the people are still in the wilderness, and uh, God is giving them instructions that will pertain primarily, particularly with the land, to when they get into the land of Canaan. But these are, um, this is God's Word for His people then and for us today. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your fields, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you. For yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourn who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of, of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of year for crops. And if the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God." Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives." The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest Redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it And then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer. Throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you have, made, whom you have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule over one, another, one over another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionally for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released In the year of Jubilee, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you for the truth that you've revealed here. I pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear it, hearts to rejoice in it. And Father, uh, we pray that uh, the purposes that you have today from this word would be accomplished. And uh, to the praise of your grace and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, I'd like you to imagine, try to imagine, a world where there was no grace. Try to imagine a world where there was only law and penalties and justice. Every time you did something wrong, you were punished. A policeman never reduced your speed ticket, bosses never excused uh, you when you were late. Friends never overlooked your offenses. Your spouse never forgave you for uh, careless words or for blatant sin. No one showed you mercy or gave you a second chance. There was never, ever grace. Think of how exhausting and heartbreaking and hard such a world would be. Always winter and never any Christmas. Praise God, that is not the world that we inhabit. Our text this morning is a wonderful reminder that God has not left us to simply law and penalties to what we deserve, but God has infused this world with the principles of grace. He's invited us to live not under the burden of all we deserve to lose, but under the banner of an inheritance that cannot be lost. And that's the core message of Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling the the burden of your sin. Maybe you're experiencing today the bondage of poor choices, sinful choices. Maybe you sense the sickness of your soul. Maybe you feel captive to bitterness, uh, to lust, to anger, to greed. And you sense your utter inability to free yourself or heal yourself. Well, brothers and sisters, there's a gospel for that. The Gospel of Jubilee, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to make our way through the text. I won't have time this morning to hit every aspect. It's a long text, as you have seen, but I want to catch the basic uh, points of the text, and then we'll apply it <clears throat> to our life today. Uh, first, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, Seven, a Sabbath for the land. Uh, God says that um, for six years, they get to work the fields and sow and harvest, but the seventh year to uh, to leave the land lie fallow. Uh, Just as God commanded Israel to work Right, six days, you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. Uh, That same command is applied to the land itself. Well, it seems a bit of a strange command. Why would the land need a year off? Why does it need a Sabbath? Well, there are several reasons. I'll list three of them. One, it has an agricultural benefit. We, all, we know that uh, land gets tired. Uh, you, can, you can exhaust the soil. And a year of lying fallow would, would replenish the land. And, and God has told them that they're going to live off the land. And he's going to provide for them from the land. But the land has to be replenished so that it can continue to grow its crops. So that's one reason. I think a more important reason is that this is part of Israel's own covenant keeping. Uh, This Sabbath command for the land is linked to the Sabbath command for Israel itself. And to understand it, we have to understand the the principle of the Sabbath. Why why the Sabbath command? Uh, The fourth commandment, Of the ten is is a little different from the other nine like a wedding ring is not just one other piece of jewelry that you own because right it it signifies something it represents a marriage covenant it's not just like another piece of jewelry in the same way the fourth commandment is not just like the other commandments it is a sign linked to the covenant God has with Israel We're told that specifically in Exodus chapter 31, 12 and 13. The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You see, the Sabbath underscores the basic principle of the covenant itself. The Sabbath underscores the fact that salvation and life will not be gained by man's working, but by man's resting. It will not be gained by his accomplishing, but by his trusting, receiving all that God has done and all that God has promised. That's the point of the Old Testament Sabbath. So keeping the Sabbath is a critical part of keeping the covenant as a whole. Back in those days when kings, when a, when a greater king would make a, a, a treaty with a lesser king, and he would say to the lesser king, tell what, I will protect you with my army, but, but here's the things you must do. You must not raise me, and you must uh, send uh, th- this amount of taxes and, and maybe other uh, supplies. Right? These are, and then every year you're to have a festival celebrating what a great guy I am. And that festival is the sign of the covenant. To fail to keep the festival is to trash the covenant as a whole and incur the wrath of the greater king. Well, that's, what the, that's how the Sabbath principle works. Keeping Sabbath is a weekly testimony that the Israel is committed to the covenant. They're committed to living by faith. They're committed to living by trusting that God will provide for them that God will keep his promises to them. It is their weekly confession that they trust the Lord for their life, their food, their salvation. It all is in the hands of God. And since God's Sabbath is eternal, it's a way of testifying in this world of their hope in a world to come. And so keeping the Sabbath of the land then is one other part. It's It's just another Sabbath in a sense. It's a year long. Because if they're not working the land, they're not working that much then either, are they? It's a rest for them as well. It's a a very radical way of saying, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, think about how trying this might be, how difficult this might be. You see, this would be a great test of Israel's faith. It, It takes a lot when you're living Year by year, your life depends on the crops you raise. It, it takes a lot of faith to let the land go fallow for a year. A year without a crop. And there's no Meyer grocery store down the road. There's no Uber Eats or DoorDash. There's nobody to call if you don't have food. All they have is a promise from God. And so look at verses 20 through 22. And if you say, God says, which they certainly will say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crops? God, here's the promise. I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you'll be eating of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. That was God's promise, direct promise. And the issue on the table is simply this. Are they going to believe him? Will they trust the Lord to provide for them? Will they trust the Lord to provide? Will they live a life of faith? Or will they ultimately just rely on themselves? The sad story of Israel is that unfortunately they tended just to rely on themselves. But here was the command. Here was the test. Well, then we have the year of jubilee. Every, 50, every 50th year was to be a, a year of jubilee. Verse 9, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Uh, scholars think the word jubilee comes from, it's very, very closely linked to the Hebrew word for trumpet, the ram's horn. And so, that, and so um, there would, it would begin on the day of atonement with a blast of a loud trumpet. We've seen before that the blast of a loud trumpet signifies the presence of God. Happens at um, Mount Sinai. It happens when Jesus comes again. The blast of the trumpet signifies the presence of the Lord. And what happens when the Lord comes? Liberty happens. Freedom happens. Restoration, redemption happens. For those of you who know your U.S. history, you might know that on the Liberty Bell... In Freedom Hall in Philadelphia, there is a Bible verse inscribed around the the Liberty Bell near the top. And this is it, verse uh, 9. Verse 10, sorry. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. That's what it says. This was a rallying cry for the abolition movement as men uh, fought against the evil of slavery in this country. It's a wonderful declaration of liberty from the bondage brought about by the sin and brokenness of this world. Now again, this would, this would relate to when Israel gets into the land of Canaan. As you know, when Israel moved into the land of Canaan, God allotted specific portions of the land to every tribe and every clan within every tribe. You can read all about it in the book of Joshua. And it's very specific. You'll read, the border runs along this brook and then it goes to that city and then it goes north up to this hill. And then, I mean, it is very specific. God specifically portioning the whole land to specific clans, specific tribes. That is their land. It is, it's God's gift to them. It's their inheritance. Well, that's all good, But as the years and the decades began to unfold after Israel was in the land, well, the sin and brokenness of this world intervenes. And some people have to sell their land in order to eat. Maybe they're lazy. Maybe they're just not good at farming. Um, Maybe they suffered a sickness or some tragedy, some great misfortune that, that made them poor. Either way, they're faced with the. We either have to sell the land, or we're going to starve. Some people were so bad off, they even had to sell themselves. Though maybe the land was already gone and they needed to sell themselves in in order to survive. Well, God allows for that, makes provisions for that. But you see, the reality of Jubilee seasons all those hard realities with grace and with hope. You see, if you were poor and you needed to sell your inheritance, you weren't really selling the inheritance. What you were doing was selling the number of crops left until Jubilee. So if there's 20 years left until Jubilee, you, you make a deal with the guy, he tell you what, let us uh, I'm going to charge you this much per crop, and we're going to times that by 20, and that's the price. If there were five years left, you'd do the same, whatever the number might be, so that you knew uh, when Jubilee came, the land comes back to you. You haven't lost it. Uh, You've lost the ability to use it for some years, but you haven't lost the land, even if you had to sell yourself into slavery. When Jubilee comes, it's over. I just want you to imagine the hope that that would inject into the hard experience of poverty. If you lost your land or you lost your freedom because of your stupidity or your inability or some tragedy, it didn't matter. It's just for a limited time. Jubilee was coming. You wouldn't always be away from your homeland. You wouldn't always be a servant. One day, and you, you knew when the day was. You can mark it off on the calendar. You were going home. A day was coming when everything that you lost was going to be restored. It's a wonderful infusion of hope into the hard uh, reality of poverty. And then we have miscellaneous rules concerning redemption. Verses 23 and following, God provides rules for um, the opportunity to buy back your land. So um, verse 25, you could buy it you could have a relative buy it back for you. Uh, verse 26, if you somehow came across some money, then you could buy it back yourself. Uh, and if you couldn't buy it back, of course, then Jubilee will come around at some point. But the point is that uh, the land, uh, and this is, this is an important point, if you're buying land, the law requires you sell it back if the guy says, I'm ready to buy it back. It's ultimately not yours, it's God's and then the man's. So what's the significance of all this? Well, I just want to think about four concepts, and then I'm sure you can think of more, but four concepts that these laws would inject into the experience of God's people. One would be the concept of stewardship. If you bought land, you're just buying a few years to use it. I, had the, I, I remember the first time that thought really hit me. Um, um, Mom and Dad sold the farm. That was really my whole life. We moved on the farm when I was four maybe five, and, um, and then I lived there my whole life, went off to college, and, and they sold it. And I remember coming back uh, for the auction sale. In fact, I was in, I was in seminary by then. And I remember going out back and walking the fields one last time and realizing we didn't own this land. We just, we just bought the right to use it for a little while. And now someone else is going to buy, buy the right to use it for a little while. You don't, you don't own the land. You just, you just own the right to use it. Well, that changes how you think about your possessions. In some sense, we don't, we don't own our stuff. It's God's stuff. We, we buy the right to use it for a little while, and even then we, we, we do so recognizing we have to give it back. You don't take any of it with you. And so the, the man who buys the land realizes it's just his for a little while, and it. And he doesn't know how long he might have it. It could be redeemed next year. It could be, or it's going to go back in the year of Jubilee. Either way, he's not able to build an empire and then give it to his kids. That's not how it works in Israel. The, uh, and God says the reason for this is it's my land. It's my land, not yours, mine, first of all. Secondly, it's, it's the man I gave it to as his inheritance, As I portioned it out. And so it teaches the wonderful principle of stewardship. We're all sojourners. That's what God says to them, right? You're sojourners and strangers. It means you're here today and you're gone tomorrow. And that's true for all of us. When you think about our our stuff, our material goods, in terms of stewardship. It all belongs to God. And we're just sojourners here on our way to a better country. Secondly, the concept of caring for the poor. You see this uh, strongly in verses 35 and following, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and sojourner, and he shall live with you and take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. So you're not allowed to get rich off the misfortunes of your brothers. When you give them a loan, you don't charge interest. Uh, you might have noticed that our deacons, when they when they uh, help someone out, they don't draw up a contract and say, okay, the interest is going to be, right, 15% and uh, we're expecting you to make payments. Uh, if they have done that, would you please let me know? <clears throat> of course they don't do that. It's God's money, A. These are God's people and and, and we're not allowed to make a profit, in that sense, on the misfortunes of our brothers and sisters. Now, this does not mean that all loans should be interest-free, as much as you might like that idea. This is, these are loans for existence, subsistence, not loans for investment. And so, um, so we, we believe banks are free to charge interest on loans for those purposes. But this concept of caring for the poor, you see, this would, be a, this would be something that was, was to define Israel. In the world of men, people love to take advantage of others. It's sort of how it works. It's how you get rich. But in God's kingdom, it doesn't work that way at all. You're not allowed to do that. You're to treat your brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters. And you share your possessions and you make sure that they're okay. You see this this same um, thing happening in the New Testament church where, where people generously care for their brothers and sisters in need. And I'm happy to say that we are, our deacons are wonderfully at work carrying out that ministry here in the congregation. It doesn't need to be limited to the deacons, and I'm sure it isn't. There's, there are many stories of generosity, of people in the congregation seeing a need and ministering to the need. May that continue. May we be marked by that. One area I'd love to see us grow is to be thinking internationally where we have brothers and sisters who don't have homes, they don't have have food, they don't have clothing, they're living in a refugee camp someplace. They have so little and we have so much. Now, I I would love to see us as a church just intentionally identify areas where we can help meet those needs. would invite the deacons to come up with some plans for that. So the concept of caring for the poor. The concept third of identity is God's free children. In verses 39 through 46, God says, If an Israelite sells himself into servitude, he is not your slave. He's your brother and sister. And so you had to pay him a wage. You got to treat him kindly. Um, You don't treat him like a slave. Now, that is not the case for foreigners. Israel was allowed to own slaves who were foreigners and even bequeath them to their descendants. But God's people are never to be enslaved, never to be slaves. Why? God says, verse 42, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and they shall not be sold as slaves. Every Israelite, rich or poor, you see, is kept out of slavery and even if they have to become a hired worker, they're assured of ultimate freedom because of one simple glorious fact, God had claimed them as his own. They belonged to God. They were children of God. They were free. And so their identity would never be the identity of a slave. And their destiny is never bondage, but glorious freedom. If the Son has set you free, you are what? Free indeed. And that's the truth pertaining to God's children. Free indeed. Fourth, the concept of assured inheritance. You see, whether you lost your... uh, Access to your property because of your own stupidity or your laziness or some great, great misfortune, your inheritance couldn't be lost. Your land was yours by God's own gracious gift and promise, and it could either be redeemed or you could receive it back in jubilee, but it could not be lost. And so since jubilee comes around every 50 years, most people would have the opportunity to experience that. Then those who, had been, who were poor. Think of the, the joy. Boys and girls, you know, mom and dad would say, we're, next week, Tuesday, we're going home. We're going back to our homeland. We, we, all the debt is canceled. Clean slate. And we get to go back to what God has given to us. All because of his grace to us. And I think that's the primary message of Leviticus 25. It's not primarily a text about land rules and how to care for the poor. though those are, It is clearly that, and God means all of it. But this is primarily a text about Christ, about the salvation that comes through him. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of Jubilee. He is Jubilee in person. And so when Jesus begins his ministry, we read in Luke chapter 4 that he goes into the synagogue there in Nazareth and he opens the scroll and he reads from what we read at the beginning of the service, Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am Jubilee. That's what he said. Why have I come to set captives free, to proclaim liberty to all those in chains of their own sinful making, to proclaim that, that redemption is possible. Freedom is possible. You can be rescued, brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God, because Jesus is our liberty. You see, Christ came, friends, exactly to proclaim that God has not left us in the ravages of our sin. God has not left us to the penalties of the law. Grace has invaded this world. So that the ultimate realities of your life and mine are not determined by what we have done and by what we deserve, but what Jesus Christ has done and what Jesus deserves and all that God has declared and purposed and promised for us in Him. That's the fundamental reality of your life. And in Christ, we have received an inheritance that cannot be taken away. In Christ, we've been given the promise of a land of our own. There is a place in a new heaven and earth that belongs to us by divine right and blood-bought promise. It has your name on it. And in this world, we're going to experience loss and heartache and weakness and failure, but this isn't our real home. We belong to another land. We have a homeland. And there we're going to enter into God's rest, God's shalom. And there will be no more brokenness there, no more debt there, nothing that is stained with sin. It will all fall away and all be made new. And so the reverberating message of the New Testament, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's our inheritance, and it cannot be lost. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writing to people who are suffering, And he says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. One of the problems in living in a land where we have so much is we so quickly lose sight of all that we lack and all that God has promised us in a new heaven and earth. It is so easy to get our eyes focused on the here and now and when our eyes and our hearts are to be fixed on what is yet to come. Brothers and sisters, we are to live as people who are aware of Jubilee who are aware of Jubilee and, 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 and to allow the reality of that glorious good news to penetrate and fill every day with hope. See, friends, every day we live as Jubilee. Every day we get into clean slate. Every day we get new mercy. Every single day God promises not to deal with you as your sins deserve, but according to all that he pr- has promised you in Jesus Christ. Every day God claims you as his own. Every day the devil tries to enslave you, God says, never. They are my servants. I brought them out of bondage. They will never be enslaved again. And we get to live then every day looking to the eternal jubilee. We get to know that the weakness and the failure and the sin and the heartache will not last. Jubilee is coming and every day is one step closer. One day the trumpet will blast and Jesus will appear and we will receive our inheritance, our homeland, in his presence forever and let that truth then penetrate into the reality of your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you are, you're, just, you're in bondage to yourself, to your sin, to your addiction, to your pride, to your hurt, to your fear. What is it? We're all affected one way or the other. What is it that keeps you from enjoying your salvation, that keeps you from living with grace and kindness and peace That keeps you from showering kindness and grace upon other people? What is it that keeps you from that? Take this reality to that reality. And let the promise of of, of God and all that he's accomplished and all that he has for you in Jesus, let that reality of grace permeate the hard, broken places of your life so that by the power of God you are being transformed and you're able to let the fear go and the bitterness, and the hurt. You're able to let the addiction go. You're able to let the anger go. Because God has loved you. Because you're his child. Because jubilee is coming. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, thank you that Jesus is my jubilee. That I have a home in, in him. And thank you, Lord, that's true for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe, Lord, there are some here this morning who've never done that and their heart is just full of of loss and and hurt and grief and pain and, and sin. And, Lord God, I pray that you would show that this is good news about the year of the Lord's favor for all who call upon you and that today anyone in this room can call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. And Lord, I pray for Christians who have never really experienced the joy of the Lord. Christians who have not lifted up their eyes and their hearts to that city that is to come, whose builder and maker is God. Christians whose lives are defined by what is broken and what what hurts. Oh Lord, I pray that we'd be people who live in a different way than the world, that we'd be people who live in the light of the gospel and the glory of grace, that we'd be people who have our eyes fixed on what Jesus has accomplished and what Jesus has promised. And that we would have an eager longing for the day when the trumpet shall sound. And we shall claim that which is eternally ours. And Father, I pray that those truths would change how we live today. That there would be kindness and compassion in our homes, in our relationships. There would be peace in our trials. There would be hope even in the heartache. And we give you the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and rejoice in the one who's redeemed us, bought us back with his own precious blood. I will sing of my Redeemer. come back tonight where we'll be looking at Acts 3, one of my favorite texts, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And as you go now, go with the grace and peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His face upon you and give you His peace. Amen.